Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So there's a story that's told of two young fish that were swimming along and they were filled with the enthusiasm and energy that comes with youth. And as the two of them were kind of happening along their way, an old fish swam up to them and wanted to strike up a conversation. So the old fish asked these two youngsters, so how's the water today? And the two fish looked at each other and then with as much condescension as they could muster up, said to the old fish, what's water? For us, the water in which we exist, that largely defines who we are, that has the single most impactful relationship with defining who we are on any given day, are our habits. And so often we're not aware of our own habits. We've come across them by accident, or through routine, but they're not habits that we've intentionally set out to have or that we even realize are our own. And yet those habits completely shape who we are. They are the water that surrounds us, that defines who we become. And so today we're going to be looking at one of the habits of Jesus that was such a core part of who he was that it was maybe his defining characteristic as a man here on earth. And so to do that, we're going to turn in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 1. Now I know this is the part of the sermon when you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I really need my own Bible. I'm just going to wait. They're going to put it up on the screen anyway. But I would love it if you would actually pull out a Bible, whether it's digital or paper, either one is fine. I would love for you to see the Gospel of Mark, because we're going to talk about a few different sections in this chapter. And besides, I could be totally lying, and you wouldn't even know, unless you were looking at your own Bible. The Gospel of Mark is a fun book to read. It's one of the Gospels. That's, those are the books that have the actual life and teaching of Jesus when he was on the earth. Mark was probably written first, and the Gospel of Mark is actually the witness of Peter. St. Peter, the Apostle Peter. See, Mark and Peter were very good friends. There's a place in 1 Peter, the book, where Peter the man mentions his friend Mark, and he calls him a son, that they were that close in the faith. They traveled together, they did ministry together, and so Mark sought out to preserve the witness of Peter by writing this gospel down. And in fact, Mark's gospel has a little different feel than all the others because it's very conversational. The language is informal. It really is the collected stories and memories of Peter as inspired by God. And so we're going to look first here at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
You've probably heard this account before. It's a huge moment in the life of Jesus. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, literally, had this ministry where he would go out to the Jordan River. People would come there. They would repent of their sins, and they would be baptized. And Jesus came to be baptized. And you know from some of the other accounts that John wasn't even sure, should I baptize Jesus? And Jesus said, yeah, you should baptize Jesus. So John baptized him. And then had this incredible moment that when Jesus came up out of the water, God the Father spoke an anointing over Jesus. And the Spirit came down and came upon Jesus like a dove, something physical, something visible. And suddenly the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, visible all at once. This was a huge, huge moment in the life of Jesus. If any of you are like original beacon, like 2005, 2006, are any of you here? Yeah, a few of you. You probably remember. We used to have like a faux stained glass thing right here that was a picture of this moment, of John baptizing Jesus. Uh, it was nice and all, but it had one unfortunate feature. For whatever reason, the artist who created it, John was wearing sort of this tunic like this. And the artist decided to be sensitive and leave out one small feature of John. So your pastors decided that we would call this stained glass Nipolis John. <laughs> so if you want to know anything about your pastors, and we can't blame Trevor for this one. He was not around in those days. There's only two of us. That's what we called our stained glass that we had of this moment, Nipolis John, okay? If you thought you would get through this sermon without anyone saying nipple, you're wrong, okay? But that aside, it was a huge moment in the life of Jesus. And what does it mean? It's clearly an anointing that has been placed on Jesus to say Jesus is now ready for ministry. He is ready to be sent out. He is ready to accomplish the destiny that God has for him in his life starting now, baptized and ready to go. It's also a clear homage to the nation of Israel. If you know the story of the Old Testament of God's people, they went through the waters of the Red Sea. That water saved them because they passed through, but the Egyptian army did not. And as they were separated, Israel then went through the waters and into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus passed through not for 40 years, but for 40 days. Take a look at this. It begins in verse 12. Verse 12 has a phrase that's really important. It says, at once. This is a major feature of the Gospel of Mark. This phrase translated either as at once or immediately or quickly because Mark is making a point. He is saying Jesus is always on the move. Jesus is moving. Jesus is active. He's not letting you know, grass grow under his feet. Jesus is always out there working, getting it done. New Yorkers, we can identify with this, right? New Yorkers, always on the move, always out there. When's the last time that you rested? You don't have to raise your hand. I know it's not pretty. I see the prayer requests, right? And in fact, when you do rest, you go on vacation. And what do you do on vacation? You go harder than when you're at work. That's what we do, right? We're New Yorkers. I think it's very fair to say in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the Savior who never sleeps, okay? He would fit right in around here, you know, 24-hour subway service, the whole deal. Jesus would be all over it. So this at once theme, but look, verse 12 says at once, 
the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. This is that Exodus theme I was talking about. Jesus sent into the desert for 40 days, just as the nation of Israel was sent for 40 years. Now, what is happening here in this wilderness? As I was studying it the last week or so, I was challenged because I actually quite, I misunderstood just a little bit where Jesus went. I'm a California boy, born and raised. So when you say desert, I'm thinking like Death Valley, where nothing can live. I'm thinking like the Sahara Desert, just absolutely the most difficult places to live on the earth. It's not quite right. This wilderness here is a Greek word called Eremos. Say that with me. Eremos, with conviction this time, like you're a choir. Eremos, very nice. The Eremos is not a harsh, unlivable desert. Eremos here is well thought of as simply wilderness or even back country. One scholar says it's not absolute barrenness, but it's unappropriated territory affording free range for shepherds and their flocks, kind of unowned, publicly available land. Another scholar said in this type of wilderness in the Aramos, you would still see in cracks and bases and on hillsides, little patches of corn, little clumps of olives, and occasional lone palm trees. So it was in the outback for sure, but it was not unlivable. In fact, the text makes a point to say that Jesus was out there with the animals. People usually assume that they're saying the spirit protected Jesus from the animals, and I'm sure that's true, but it might even be more simple that there were animals that lived out there, out there in the wilderness. Remember, John the Baptist lived out there, sort of a perpetual camper, I guess. He was always in the wilderness, and that's the kind of place, and one really important theme of the Aramos is understanding the solitude of it. That if you went out there, there would be very few people. You would have a lot of time alone, have a lot of time by yourself. And that's where Jesus went. For 40 days, he went into the Aramos. Now, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it'll tell you about the temptations, what the enemy said, what Jesus said in return. They have all these exchanges. It's very cool. That is not Mark's style. Mark gives it to you in exactly two verses. Jesus went out. He came back. One, two, done. I'm like, my kind of guy. On the move. Keep it moving. So then, what happens there in verse 12? It moves forward. Then, you see in the rest of the chapter, Jesus starts to have pretty awesome couple of days. First, at once, in the true style of Mark, we set off. Jesus goes out to call his disciples. Now, they're not yet the disciples. Mark is careful to call them companions because they're not very acting, very disciple-like yet. So you'll never guess in the gospel of Mark, who is the first disciple mentioned? Peter, of course. Peter and his brother called by Jesus. Then immediately James and his John called by Jesus. Two sets of brothers, these four men. And Jesus did something unique here because he was on the move. In those days, it would have been more traditional for a well-known teacher and a rabbi to start teaching. Then people would come to him and say, I'm very moved by your teaching. I'm very taken by your authority. I want to follow you. And the rabbi would say, yes, you're welcome to join me in my ministry. And the rabbi would collect students. Not so with Jesus. Jesus didn't wait. Jesus went straight to these men at their place of work and said, come follow me. They were fishermen. So he said, I have a metaphor for you. You can follow me. Come follow me. I will send you out to fish for people. 
And they were like, we are in. And at once, they went with Jesus. Then, the next day, Jesus had quite a day. And it's all there in, in the first chapter of Mark. You can read it. First, Jesus went to the synagogue to teach. The text says people were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority, the type of authority in the teaching that they had never heard before. And they were moved by his strength and by the strength of his teaching there in the synagogue. And while he was in the synagogue, a person came to him that was overcome and overtaken by an impure spirit of some kind. And Jesus cast that spirit out of this person. We could talk about that for days and days. What the heck is that? What is going on there? Suffice it to say, it was being demonstrated that Jesus has authority over all that is seen and unseen, right? The crowd was amazed by the authority of his teaching. Supernatural world submitted to his authority when he told them where to go and what to do. Immediately after synagogue, after church, after synagogue, he went over to Peter's house. And at Peter's house, they were going to have Sunday dinner. But they couldn't have Sunday dinner because Peter's mother-in-law was sick. So Jesus healed her. She had a fever, probably something like malaria. I think all of the Italians completely understand this. They're like, we can't go to mom's house and have dinner if mom is sick. Jesus understood. So he healed her, and then she cooked the meal right away. <laughs> it says it right in the text. Then they had a wonderful meal together, and then as soon as it was dark, which is important because that means the Sabbath ended, people started bringing their sick friends and loved ones to Jesus right there basically in Peter's yard, and Jesus started healing them. It was an incredible day. All of Jesus' ministry was on full display, his unbelievable teaching, his supernatural authority, and his ability to heal the body. So he's healing body, mind, and soul, right? Mark has his summary statement. You can see it in verse 28. It says, word spread quickly in the whole region of Galilee. It's like an understatement. Jesus was instantly trending. He was hot. People were totally in to what was going on. So what was Jesus' response? Mark 1:35. very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This verse has always meant a lot to me personally because it's amazing to see Jesus' response. That when his ministry was booming, when things were going great, what did Jesus do the very next day? He got up in the dark and went out to pray. And where did he go? What is the word for the solitary place? He went back to the Aramos, this time conjugated as the Aramon Topon. Jesus went back to the Aramos. Now, not literally, because the wilderness where Jesus went and was tempted, that was up by the Jordan River, and then he went out probably to the west into the wilderness. This now is here by the water. Remember, just yesterday, he was talking to fishermen in their boats. But Jesus went intentionally to a solitary place to pray. And that's not what comes naturally to us. That when things are booming, things are rocking, things are busy, that we say, wow, I need to pull back from this. I need to take some time and I need to pray. And it's not just us because the disciples were also very confused. Verse 36 says, Simon and his companions went to look for him, Jesus. And when they found him, they exclaimed, 
Everyone is looking for you. The scholars tell us that the language here in these verses is aggressive. The disciples, soon to be disciples, they were annoyed. They were frustrated. They went to Jesus and said, what are you doing out here? Things are booming. You've, we've, you've never been hotter. We should be back there. That's where things were going great. You're out here by yourself. This is not the time and the place to be hanging out by yourself. They were aggressive to saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. But Jesus remained in that solitary place and he prayed. And as we keep going through the gospel of Mark, you'll see this was a regular habit for Jesus. He would regularly pull away and pray. Luke has a very succinct statement. He says, but Jesus often withdrew to the Aramos and prayed. This was a regular part of the rhythm of his life. You may remember that on Jesus' last day as a free man, he had dinner with his disciples. He had Passover, which became the Lord's Supper. Then what did they do? They left to go and pray in a garden. And when they were there, they were together for a while. And then Jesus said, okay, you're going to stay here. And I'm going to go a little bit further. And there Jesus prayed alone one last time before he went to the cross. From beginning to end, this habit was the water that surrounded him that formed and shaped who he was. So if you and I are going to be effective in life and in ministry here on earth, we must have the habit of personal daily prayer. But why don't we do this? I think very simply, we don't like to pause and stop for prayer because it means we can't be on the move. It means we have to be still. We have to stop. And that can be very, very disconcerting. First of all, when you stop, you're instantly going to fall behind, right? The others who don't stop, they just burst ahead of you and you will never catch them again. At least we're so led to believe. You might find that you keep pushing and pushing because you're trying to earn someone's love or favor. That you're worried that if you stop, you're not going to be delivering what people expect of you. Or sometimes we just simply don't want to be alone with our thoughts. That can be a pretty scary place to be, to just sit and think and to realize what is in there that really shouldn't be in there. That can be difficult to hear. But if you and I are going to be effective in life and ministry here on earth, we must have the habit of personal daily prayer. So let's talk through a day for what a day probably looks like because you have a day full of habits. And many of these habits you did not pick, you did not design, many of them you may not even be aware of, but you have these habits undoubtedly. And I think your day sometimes might look a little bit like this. Your morning liturgy that you have when you wake up is probably filled with guilt or anxiety. The guilt comes from when you think about yesterday and you think, oh my goodness, why did I eat that? Why did I watch that? Or you can say what I say, why did I say that? And you have all this guilt about the day before. Why did I stay up so late? Why am I getting up so late? Why are my kids getting up so early? You have all this guilt. Or you may have anxiety because you have a lot of pressure today. So you're thinking, what do I need to get done? 
What's going to happen today? What's required of me out there before I'm allowed to get back in this bed? And you're anxious and worried. So what is your morning habit now? What is your morning liturgy? Statistics say it's probably your phone. 75% of all adults charge their phone on their nightstand. It's the last thing they look at in the evening. It's the first thing they look at in the morning. And why are you looking at your phone? Well, you're probably trying to manage that anxiety. Most people look at their phone for one simple question. How much work is waiting for me when I get there? I've talked to many of you. You work on groups that are worldwide. So there are people ahead of you in the time zone. So they are in Europe. They're in Asia. They've been loading you up with work the whole time you slept. Right? Then you open your email and you go, this is a disaster. Anxiety and you're worried, and we start with our phones. And it's hard because work and career are often our identity. We don't want to disappoint people in those things. So we say, what do I have to do to make someone else happy with me today? How can I justify my existence in the world today? And this happens to all of us. I was listening to a leadership podcast this week. It was really good. But the leader was making this point, and he was saying, you know, the value that you bring to the organization is directly tied to the size of the problems that you solve. If you solve big problems for your organization, then you have big value. But if you solve small problems for your organization, you have small value. So I started thinking about that. I'm like, I don't know what I think about this. What size problems do I solve? <laughs> Does Beacon have any big problems? Do I need to make some big problems <laughs> so that I can fix the big problems? I can start worrying, what's my value? What's my contribution? And that's how we're wired. And so often we start thinking that before we even get out of our beds. But what if instead of starting with the habit of morning email before you even stand upright, what if you prayed? What if you prayed a prayer like this? In Christ, there is nothing that I can do that would make you love me more. And nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. As I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. And with morning prayer, your day is off in a whole different direction. Not guilt, not anxiety, but gospel-centered identity. All right, so now you make it to the middle of the day. The midday has a whole different feel. Your morning surge of energy is over, but a realization is starting to set in. Because for some reason, when you left the house this morning, you thought to yourself, today's the day that I'm going to catch up. And by midday, you realize, today is not the day that I'm going to catch up. And you get really worried, and you think, how am I going to respond? And so your midday routine is probably to grab another coffee or another tea and try to just power through and get some more work done. Your body knows you can't just power through all the time. And so subconsciously, you have other habits to start to escape, to start to give yourself a little break. I don't know what that habit is, but for a lot of people, it would be social media. You sit at work, and you're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. You have to use your phone because they block Facebook at work, but uh, <laughs> you couldn't really catch that hint. So instead, you just use a different device and scroll Facebook anyway. You're just looking, looking. You know, I have arthritis in my finger from scrolling, scrolling. Or maybe for you, it's not social media. Maybe you go on YouTube, like to watch shows. I read a study this week that 
The average executive work week right now in our area is 72 hours a week. It's a big number. The same group of people spend 3.9 hours a week on YouTube. So the one thing, the one commodity they do not have enough of time, they're giving 3.9 hours of it right back to YouTube. Maybe for you it's not social media, it's not YouTube, maybe it's online shopping. Maybe you pull out your phone and you think, boy, if I had this thing, that would really help me to get this done, or that would help me to relax, or whatever. And then you'll have an interesting phenomenon, because if you're having a busy enough week, you'll eventually come home. There will be a package on your doorstep, and you are going to look at it, and you're going to say, I wonder what's in that box <laughs> that you bought two days ago. Because it was just a momentary distraction, and now you have the Amazon mystery box, and you don't even remember what it is. Because these are escapes that we take. But what if instead of social media, YouTube, and online shopping as your distraction, what if you prayed? What if you prayed a, a prayer of Peter to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, meaning you alone, have the words of life. And then by the evening, you come home. Evening has a whole different feel again. You can't power through anymore. The day is over. And this usually becomes a time of self-judgment. You're disappointed in yourself. You realize that you didn't have the day that you wanted to have, so you start to cope. What do you do? You might have a drink. The only thing better than one drink, two drinks, right? You decide to have some sugar, whatever you like, pasta, cookies, ice cream, all three, the Holy Trinity. I mean, whatever it is, just start getting through the evening. Or maybe you watch a lousy show. Or maybe you watch something much, much worse. It's going to rot your soul. But what if instead of sugar, alcohol, pills, and porn, what if you prayed? What if you prayed the prayer of the psalmist to say, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me? How would your life change if you dedicated each of these moments in your day not to your habits but to a new habit of prayer. And this is an area that I think we all can grow in. I'm right there with you. I would, I would, my life would be changed if I could really have prayer become that deep a part of my soul. So if you are interested, we're going to offer you a tool this week for the next seven days. If you would like to grow in praying three times a day, it's not a magic formula. You don't have to pray three times a day. You don't have to face any certain direction, nothing like that. But if you would just decide, I want to saturate my day with prayer, and I want to try this idea of three times a day, just text the word pray to our texting number. And we will send you a reminder three times a day for the next week. That's it, 21 texts to just say, hey, it's time to pray. And we might just give you a, a small reminder, a small idea of what to pray for. No commitment no pressure. If you're joining us live on social media today, you can do the same text pray to our texting number. If you're catching it on the podcast later, we did this on January 26th for a week. So if you're watching this in March, don't text pray. <laughs> but we would love to help you in this. Come alongside. We can pray together. And I'd like to invite the band up because they're going to lead us through the next part of our service. But as I was researching the Eremos this week, I found some pretty cool stuff. One of the things that I found is that the early church knew where it was that Jesus went 
on the morning of Mark 135. It's this little cave here that sits on a hillside up above the Sea of Galilee. And the early church, you know, they would go there and they would pray because they would be reminded of when Jesus was there and he prayed. In fact, Jesus was kind of known for this spot. If you ever read Luke 11, it talks about when Jesus taught them the Lord's Prayer. It actually says that one day Jesus was praying and it says, in a certain place. And that's probably this place because Jesus was known to go to this solitary place and pray. And what I find fascinating about, they call it the Eremos Grotto now, named after our text. What I find fascinating about the Eremos Grotto is that it's on the same hillside, about partway up, that at the top of the hill, with kind of looking down over the sea, that's where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. They now call it Mount Eremos. And I find it to be striking because how often do we want to march to the top of the hill and do everything for God, but we haven't yet spent the time of preparation in the cave? Because if we haven't been in the cave, we will never be what God has created us to be on the top of the mountain. It just doesn't work that way. And so to be everything he's created us to be, be effective at life and ministry here on earth. We must have a habit of daily prayer. Now, if you go inside the Aramos crowd and you turn around and you look out, this is the view. You're looking east over the Sea of Galilee. Now, the text doesn't say why Jesus got up early. And you can guess some scholars say, well, clearly he was already famous. He needed to move about freely. Yeah, sure. Others say, well, it was a matter of priority. Jesus wanted to do a first thing. He got up early and prayed. Also very true. I also have a theory that when you get up and you have a view, when you're looking east over the water, maybe he just wanted to see that sunrise. Just say, this is my father. This is my father's world and I serve him. And so for you, as we begin to build a culture and an attitude of prayer, I don't want to wait till tomorrow. I don't want to wait till the morning. I want us to right now sit in this cave with Jesus. You're sitting here with the Savior. You're looking out over the water, knowing that God has met us here. We're going to take some time right now for quiet and for prayer. And as this, as this song is, is sung, think about what it means to sit there with your Savior in this moment, asking that He would speak to you, that His words would be heard, 